Welcome to our Season 1 Finale, Episode 24, The Die Hard Series. On this episode, Johnny and Eddie discuss all five movies in the Die Hard series. Johnny shares a comment from one of our subscribers. Eddie mentions Season 2 and our year-end special you will not want to miss. We invite you to grab some popcorn and your favorite beverage, take a seat, and put up your feet, because we're talking movies. Welcome back. I'm Johnny Popcorn. And I'm Eddie Klieg, and we're talking movies. Before I send it back over to you, Johnny, I just want to mention something. This is our season finale of season one, and it's been great and awesome. I have been mentioning that season two is going to start fairly quickly within the next couple of weeks, and I need to make a correction on that. Uh, we're actually going to wait and start season two at the beginning of 2020 in January. It's a good thing because there are some different aspects of the show that will be not necessarily changing, but enhancing. A lot of it will be things that can be seen in show notes and maybe even the merch word, mm. <laughs> stuff like that. Uh, there's going to be a website improvement. It just gives me some time to be able to get that done but also gives us a little bit of break over the holidays. You know, keep a look out your, your pod platform. We'll give you an update as soon as that new episode is posted. We'll be on social media, all that good stuff. Until then, we will have at least one special show this year before uh, we get to season two. And I don't know, we can talk about it a little more at the end of the show, but that's something that you'll want to keep a look at. My main thing right now at this point of the show is just to mention real quick, thank you for listening to season one. This is our last episode of this season. Season two will start after the first of the year. That's it. Go ahead. Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, you know, at the end of the show, you're always encouraging people to uh, send us comments about various things, suggestions, and so on. And this week we got one that I'm going to comment on. I think we should need to mention this. We received from a listener named Gail. It was about our podcast on business movies. During our podcast on that subject, I commented that such films like Wall Street and the more recent Big Short, The Big Short had become more prominent and moviegoers were more interested because more people were involved in investments along with the growth of the 401ks and so on. And due to the dot-com bust in the early 90s and the more recent collapse of the housing market, more and more people were affected by business and politics in recent times. So inevitably, more people were paying attention. Well, Gail brought up a point that I certainly should have mentioned. Although we discussed how women have become uh, strong movie characters in episode 9, we did not specifically deal with women in business. Uh, although more recently, uh, we talked about one woman in business, uh, the movie Joy, when we did the business segment. But Gail suggested that as more and more women entered the work world, and with more women taking major managerial roles, including CEO, the public's interest in these movies expanded. And with this influx of more women in key roles and the various obstructions that they worked to overcome, dismissal of their capabilities by male counterparts, sexual harassment, lesser pay for the same work, child care issues, certainly provide greater storylines for films to reflect. So looking back, I took a quick look just through my search my memory bank, shall we say, the issues of a domineering boss, for example, and how to overcome his action with the subject, were the subject of the 1980 film, 9 to 5, with Jane Fonda, Dolly Parton, and Lily Tomlin. Working 9 to 5, what a way to make a living. 
Sally Field, of course, was a worker who portrayed she, Norma Ray, who worked to lead an unionization effort in a southern textile company. That performance earned her a Best Actress Oscar. So there we have work situations. And in the 90s, Barry Levinson's film Disclosure, based on Michael Crichton's book of the same title, showed that the woman could also abuse the power of her position. And the film illustrates the consequences of a woman executive, that's Demi Moore, using her position to harass and dominate one of her subordinates, played by Michael Douglas. And then I thought of another one, Diane Keaton in Baby Boom in 1987, showed another problem faced by women in the work world, how to work and care for a child as a single mother. And she faced the dilemma when she became the guardian of a baby upon the death of a relative. She lost her corporate job, her boyfriend. She leaves New York City for Vermont. There she establishes a small business and grapples with the various life events and the question of whether she'll return to the corporate world. Well, that's just a few. So I want to thank, on our behalf, Ed, uh, Gail, for taking time to listen and, more importantly, taking time to comment. We love to hear from our listeners. So thank you, Gail. Now I guess I ask Eddie, where are we going today? Well, Johnny, my thought was that we would go to a series of movies. The first movie happens to be one of my favorite Christmas movies. So we're talking the Die Hard series. <laughs> yeah, that's one of my favorite Christmas movies, too. You know, people talking about yeah. the, you, know, you shoot your eye out, what is that, yeah. the Christmas story? Yeah. Yeah, ain't nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Die Hard, 1988, that's, that's the best Christmas movie. Yeah, that's, and it established, of course, uh, another kind of a favorite of ours, I guess you could say, Bruce Willis, as a potential, because this was a big movie switch from him, he was a TV star, of course, he would have been on that, uh, what was this show called, Moonlighting, I believe, with Sybil Shepherd. And he always had kind of a, he always kind of, I don't want to say snarky, but he always had a snide commentary, and he was always a, kind of tongue-in-cheek and so on. So his personality played very well into the lead character here, uh, John McClane, the New York City detective who had broken up with his wife. She had moved to a major corporation and uh, take a job in the L.A. area. And he's in New York, and he goes to visit her, near the Christmas holiday, right. trying to get together, try to repair maybe the marriage if possible. And, of course, he stops in at, uh, at the time they're having their office party. She's working for a Japanese uh, company, Nakatomi Corporation, and they've just built this new high-rise called Nakatomi Plaza. In fact, it's not even completed yet. And that's where the, he meets her boss, played by James Shigeta, and... He's going to hook up with her, and he's actually trying to clean up from his journey while the party's going on. And, of course, that's when a group of terrorists take over the building and hold the entire group of people hostage, which leaves him with the situation of, how in the heck can I save my wife and maybe get out of this mess alive, basically? And the story revolves around that. Yeah, I I I love this movie. Um, just the just the action and the like like you're saying, just the what do I do? What do I do? And you have an unfinished business building, so you got floors that are 
virtually no windows even there. Um, just everything that that takes place um, right down to the the villain of the movie. I I think that it's great. Yeah, well, the villain of the movie, and uh, this is a guy I I after this film I became very attached to him, and I watched about everything he did. The English actor, Alan Rickman, who is terrific as the supposedly German anarchist Hans Gruber with his group of mostly German, and anyway, it's an international group of thugs that he brings in. And it turns out that what they're trying to do, why are they doing this? Well, it's really to take over $640 million worth of bearer bonds that actually are held in a vault in the building itself. And that's really why they're there. McLean doesn't understand that yet. The, thing, the real issue is he was cleaning up, so he doesn't have his shoes. He's barefoot. He's only got his undershirt and his trousers on, so he's running around, you know, not very well dressed. And, of course, he's, uh, he does have a, a revolver with him. He initially had his uh, uh, firearm for the police department, as I recall. I believe he did. Yeah, I don't remember offhand that part. Did he have a gun? I think he did for like a, yeah. a scene. <laughs> yeah, he lost, and then he has to find out how can I get the weaponry somewhere along the line from these guys. And, of course, the whole series of events is trying to, one by one, whittle down the force of terrorists until he can eventually figure out a way to end the whole thing. It's pretty well done, and, of course, it was it was it was really surprising— even when I went to see it, I didn't really know what I was getting into. Now, they, there's a side character here who's very important for him that he communicates with, and that is the police officer on the outside who he becomes kind of, well, just by bonding through the experience of talking to them by radio that he's been able to get. Yeah, that part played by Reginald Val Johnson. Val Johnson, He yeah. was in uh, Urkel. It's a rare condition this day and age. Ah, Bose will remember him. Yeah, and he later, after this movie, got a TV show. I know that. He, he ended up, he got some notice. The, the running gag in this is, of course, the guy, he loves his, uh, what's the, uh, oh, I'm seeing it right now, the cakes. Oh, Twinkies. Twinkies, yeah. He, he knows exactly what they're made from. He eats them all the time. <laughs> yeah, and he's, he's, he's got a little secret, apparently. He had... Uh, done uh, something bad and he was felt bad about it and it had affected his his police work i don't know if we want to say that as a spoiler this is 25 years this is uh 35 years ago now 1988 if my math is right yeah just about it it was a long time ago yeah and this whole series is over yeah it's 20 some years ago the whole series that we're talking about, there are five episodes or five versions where McLean's involved over a 25-year period. So this is a stretch of time this these series run. So anyway, he uh, figures out a way to uh, get through the mess. There's yeah. there's two competing things here. The one of the things that Gruber uses, Gruber understands police tactics, how they're going to try to approach the building. He also knows to get the FBI involved, and he also one of the things he had, one of the people he has on his team is an IT guy, who's very adept at trying to solve and hack into the security system that 
operates the vault. So it's kind of a stall tactic to keep the the authorities at bay until he's eventually going to be able to steal the money and get out of town. And everything else is basically a diversion. There is a point where he's going to actually going to it looks like he's going to slaughter everybody in the in the building. Uh, won't give that completely away, but that's a big threat. McLean un uncovers what they're planning to do, and he thwarts that. Uh, the best thing about this is McLean's probably comes close to being killed at least five different times, if not more. He some by his own doing and some by... Yes, yes. There's, I mean, he gets cut up. He has glass in his feet. There's all kinds of things that go wrong. But he, little by little, he... Uh, he thwarts the the episode, and uh, the ending is pretty stunning. Uh, we won't give the total thing away. Nah. I have the financials here. Uh, budget was twenty eight million. Domestic was eighty three million, and the overall gross one hundred and forty one million five hundred. So very successful movie in that route. It is a very good Christmas movie. Don't know if you can watch it with your children, though, but, yeah. you know. Uh, I've, I've got some some facts for you here. I don't know if you knew this. I just found this out, that the original script is actually based on a novel. Yeah, I, I think I heard something about that. I read something about that, too. I don't know what the novel name is, which is probably pretty funny. Um yeah, I don't know. I don't have the name. But I do know that the director, uh, the the original book, the action took place over three days. Ah. But the the director, John McTurman. Yep, McTurman. Yeah, he's... He was inspired to have it all take place in one night by Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. Well, I think we talked about this before. Anytime you can make a movie where you're covering a shorter period of time. You know, we talked about you've got an hour and you actually follow an hour. Uh, or you go back to something like High Noon where the clock is part of, you know, the train's coming and, the, and we're just crossing genres here. But when the, you're paying attention to the clock and you know how the time is passing, when this event's going to happen, these people are coming and so on, it really adds to the tension. If they'd have tried to stretch this over three days in the telling of it, I don't think it'll work. You know, the, this movie in some ways has been compared to um, what were 24 on TV was compared to right. it. And it, 24 worked that same way. I mean, every episode was right. one hour. One hour. Um, here's my, I, I figured out what the name of the novel is because it's in my next little note here. Clint Eastwood originally owned the rights to the novel, which is called Nothing Lasts Forever, which the film was based on. He planned to star in the film in the early 80s. Never got around to it. Script was sold. Rest is history that that way. The fictional Nakatomi Plaza is the headquarters of 20th Century Fox, their new building that was being built. Mm -hmm. And 20th Century, Century Fox charged itself rent for the use of the unfinished building. Cool, cool. very cool. There you go there. Yeah. Uh, the scene in which Gruber and McLean meet was inserted into the script after Alan Reichman, who plays Hans Gruber, was found to be very proficient at mimicking American accents. That was a hole in the movie that they were trying to figure out 
during this whole filming because they kept making a lot of changes was he wanted them both to kind of run into each other and not know who each other are mm-hmm. or especially didn't want McCain to Reitman or Gruber obviously knew who John McCain was when he's you know right. starts talking to him and all that kind of stuff but McCain didn't know who who uh, Gruber was even when they met face to face I think again in the movie later on. Well, when he meets, he says, what's your name? He said, Bill Clay. Yeah. And he looked up and there's a William Clay that's on the little ledger, you know, the little sign for all the people and what, what room they're in. And this goes back again to our friend Gerard Butler or other English people. They always say American accents are easy. Americans have real problems doing British or Cockney accents. Right. We don't do well with that. Everybody's saying that's so phony. And yet you see all these actors, even the Australians come over here, and they're playing these American characters, and you say, that guy's from Australia? That guy's from England? Right. I mean, yeah. It just, so it plays right right there. I suppose we should say that since his wife is critical to this, that's Bonnie Bedelia. Uh, we got Rickman and Reginald Bell Johnson. And Alexander Gudinoff, who's the late Alexander, he was a dancer, uh, right up there with uh, Barishnikov, he played one of the bad guys in this movie. And there's quite a few scenes where he and McLean kills his brother, basically, and he wants the whole movie, he's trying to get revenge on McLean, and they have a couple of uh, episodes where they, he's a critical character in the entire thing. Yeah, definitely. Terrific ending. It's a terrific ending. It's a terrific film, frankly. There I am, a terrific again. But this one was, uh, it really made got uh, Willis noticed. He was perfectly cast as far as I'm concerned with the way it worked out. One of, one of the famous uh, lines in the movie, which actually was a lot of pressure was given to the director to drop this language out mm-hmm. of the out of the movie. They didn't. It's considered uh, the 96th of the 100 greatest movie lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was changed for TV, so I will use the TV version. Yeah, yeah. All those out children know exactly where I'm going with this. yippee Kaye, melon farmer. There you go. Yep, yep, there so, you go. And it, it is used, that, that original line is used in every one of the Die Hard movies at some point. Yeah, that's right. So. That's right. And then lastly, in the beginning, Roger Ebert was one of the few critics and gave it a negative review. Main reason he'd did it was because he hated the character chief Dwayne robinson oh yeah he said the character was unnecessary useless dumb and he prevented the movie from working he did like the sequels and he later changed his opinion on this particular movie but i thought i'd throw that out yeah the uh what he's talking about is the police officer who's in charge of the la police and of course until the fbi get involved he is rather dumb resistant doesn't want to listen to uh there's actually a line in there when he asks Bill Johnson, he says, I believe Bill Johnson's telling him, the commanding officer, he says, I believe he's a police officer. How do you know that? Just the way he talked, he said, he could be, because the way he read a light, he, what he said, he read a driver's license. Heck, he could be a bartender for all you know. <laughs> you know, he just was resistant to the whole idea that the end guy, the guy that he was talking to the cops isn't part of the whole deal. So... McLean had that to deal with, but it's it's very good. The fact that this thing made money, the fact that it had resonance in the in the marketplace, so to speak, 
is the reason that Die Hard 2 came out just two years later. I mean, they, they tracked this character and moved ahead on this uh, project pretty quickly. Definitely, and yeah. You, they didn't waste any time with the sequels. Well, we talked about the London's Fallen series. Those things came bang, 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 bang. So the same thing here. In this case, McLean again, he's waiting for his wife at Dulles Airport. She's tied up because of the weather. Weather is getting bad. Snow is coming. It's Christmas time. A group of rogue military operatives seize control of Dulles International Airport. They do some electronic diversion. They reroute some wiring, pretty heavy wiring, to take over complete control of the air traffic situation at Dulles and bring the thing to literally a halt. And McLean, along with some help from a gentleman who works for the airport, trying to figure out a way to get around what the these bad guys are doing until his wife can be landed safely. We have a cop in, again, another police officer played by Dennis Franz, who was pretty popular on a, the Hill, I believe it was the Hill Street Blues series on TV. These guys making this transition from TV. And Fred Dalton Thompson, who became a senator, Senator Thompson from uh, Tennessee, plays the head of the airport, who's trying to deal with this weather control problem. Now he's got terrorists involved. And uh, Bonnie Bedelia is up in the airplane worrying about. And uh, the side story is that the military people are read by, led by a guy by the name of, uh, the actor is Will, William Sadler. And they're using this whole hoax to uh, get a prisoner who's being brought in federal jurisdiction coming in from Central America, I believe. He's a drug lord. And they're there to try to get him, get him out. Because they've, they've done some bad things in his stead in the past. That's basically the gist of the story. And McLean's whole whole task, and he gets into a, right from the very beginning, gets in, he, he kills someone early on, realizes they're a bad guy, and tries to, again, convince the authorities that he's dealing with that they got a real mess on their hands. So he's fighting the powers that be as well as the terrorists to, to resolve the situation. Yeah, the numbers on this movie, budget was $70 million. Mm-hmm. Domestic, $117.5 million. Worldwide gross, $240 million. This one was based on a book as well. Uh, 1987 yeah. book, novel, Walter, Walter, 58 minutes. Yeah, Walter, Walter Wager. I see, I got yeah. a note here that he, that he wrote that one. Yeah, so they basically took it and then they threw some stuff in to make it into a hard... Because it wasn't exactly word for word. The movie is, isn't to the book or even kind of close. It just took different aspects of it and then melded it into this for John McCain to be in it. Not John McCain. <laughs> McLean. Go ahead. John McLean, yes. Um, there are a couple, I have a couple trivia points on this one, not as many as the last one. First of all, there's a different director, Rennie Harlan, because yes. the original director, John McTiernan, McTiernan, who was planning on directing it, he could not because he was committed and in the middle of directing the 1990 film the Hunt for the Red October. That's what I thought. I thought McTiernan had, dra- had trying to remember if he had directed that, because he's a pretty good director. Rennie Harlan um, has done a couple of movies. He's actually the former husband of Gina Davis. That's one of the things I remember. They were going through some some issues. I think even at that time, he directed a pirate movie that was a disaster that she was a star in, 
It was a star vehicle for her, and it was a disaster. And I can't even remember the name of it. I didn't see it. it sounds but like a disaster. It was. It was a disaster. <laughs> it, it, so Now, Vel Johnson was in this movie. Mm-hmm. As a, but most of his scenes were cut. He only had like one line. Yeah, there's a fact. There early in the thing, uh, the, this guy that McLean kills gets some fingerprints and he faxes them through to the that, guy. That's how they they get him in there. So the, the old relationship is rekindled. You know how you're doing, kind of thing. It's it's interesting because he was in those two movies, and because of course, like you mentioned in, in the previous movie about the Twinkies, his family and people in his neighborhood tease him constantly about the whole Twinkie thing. Oh, really? Yeah, like they, I love you know it. how usually like people do like TP a house or egg a house, they Twinkie the house. <laughs> I just thought that that was funny. <laughs> I'm a Twinkie your house. <laughs> well, they one of the things is they they filmed I believe they filmed this in Denver because it snows in Denver. But then it didn't, it didn't snow. snow. Yeah, and they had to use artificial snow, and the whole thing came up looking a little. It would. Ma- they they had trucks full of ice come in, or snow yeah. come in, from the uh, from some of the skiing places, and it would melt by the time they were able to use it the yeah. next day. So they kept constantly bringing in. Here's one for you. I have two more here. One is that Joel Silver was the producer of the Die Hard. The, First couple diehards, I don't think he was in the last, I don't think he produced the last two, but these first two at least. And also Lethal Weapon. Mm. And originally, Mel Gibson was offered and turned down the diehard series. Mm. And Bruce Willis was offered and turned down the Lethal Weapon series. I love so how they that basically, happens. They basically swapped. Don't you love how that, I just love those stories, how that happens. And lastly, Black and Decker. Mm-hmm. They paid to have their cordless drill featured in a scene with Bruce Willis. The scene was cut. Ugh. Black and Decker sued 20th Century Fox in the first ever product placement lawsuit of a film. The $150,000 claim was settled out of court. <laughs> I like that. Oh, yeah. This kind of reminds me of uh, in the Equalizer, they use a, I don't know what drill they used, but he put a drill right in the back of that wide guy's head in the Equalizer when he's yeah. in the Home Depot type store they were in, whatever the brand of that store was. It wasn't Home Depot, but it was modeled on that kind of thing. Whatever so, whatever the drill maker was, yeah. they probably paid to have that placed yeah. in there. Yeah. Well, what's interesting, uh, the, 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 the part of the story that really matters here is the weather is forcing the planes to, they can't reroute everybody. They're circling the airport. They're running low on fuel. And if he doesn't solve this issue pretty quickly, a lot of planes are going to fall out of the sky, basically. And his wife happens to be on a plane that's in danger, as we said earlier. And there's a reporter that was in the first one that actually comes close to exposing and endangering his wife and McLean himself is on the plane with Mrs. McLean. And there's a law, there had been a legal issue where she he can't be within certain amount of space from her. And uh, so there's a little side story that goes on amidst all the potential disaster going on. Right. So, so Bonnie Bedelia has a major, point is his wife has a major role in this one 
as well. It is also considered a Christmas movie. Yep. Does not rate does not rate on my Christmas scale as high as the original. No, and before we close out, I want to get your opinion on where you would put them one, two, three, four, five type of thing. Mm-hmm. We haven't talked about this. We have not talked about this off air, so I, I'm kind of curious. The third one in the series, which came out in. Uh, 1995, so it took another five years before they decided to do one, and McTiernan is back here. And this is Die Hard with a Vengeance, and this introduces, as this, as this uh, series goes on, I mean, the quality of actors is very good in all of them. There's some major people. As we said, Rickman was you know, not well-known, particularly in the U.S., but it made a made an international sensation out of him and certainly changed his career. But Die Hard with a Vengeance has one of my favorites, Jeremy Irons, who plays the bad guy. And the gist here is John McClane gets targeted by the leader of this German terrorist group, a guy by the name of, oh, it's Simon Gruber. Uh, And he gets involved early in the sequence with a Harlem store owner. And there's a backstory as to how all that happened. And that store owner is played by Another one of our favorites. we got a lot of favorite actors, folks. Samuel L. Jackson. So then the two of them are put together through the entire film, cast into all these circumstances, trying to circumvent these terrorists who basically are robbing the Federal Reserve in New York City. So it becomes a kind of a cat and mouse game. How do they catch up with them? Can they catch them? Will the bad guys get away? Will McLean and Jackson catch up with them? Will, will McLean and Jackson live long enough to get through this? Because they're put in danger in about three different circumstances where it looks like it could be the end. But uh, McLean is pretty resilient, I always say. Yeah, there's a lot of little riddles that go on that they have to answer. And right. And it's kind of like with the first movie, the there's some distractions being made, mm-hmm. the intent of what was going on. It didn't really come clear at the beginning or uh, first part of the movie on exactly what they were looking for. Uh, like you said, was the, was the Federal Reserve. And his name is Simon. And every time yeah. he gives it, Simon says. Right. He doesn't say Simon says. It's an, So there's this, you know, go to the next phone call. It's kind of like they did in Dirty Harry where he has to go to this phone call, this phone call. And if somebody else answers, bad stuff is going to happen. So there's a lot of a lot of that diversionary stuff going on. It's a pretty good film, though. It's a pretty good film. Yeah, definitely. And actually, this script that was used for this movie uh, was originally considered by Joel Silver, again, who produced Mm -hmm. both this and Lethal Weapon. This was actually going to be the third sequel to Lethal Weapon. Hmm. It was considered for it. 20th Century Fox, however, did not agree to sell the script to Joel Silver to use for Lethal Weapon. It's, it's with the Federal Reserve, like you said. Jonathan Heinsley is one of the writers. He was actually detained by the FBI after completing the script for the film because he knew extensive information about the Federal Gold Reserve in downtown Manhattan that was not p- made public. <laughs> Hensley stated that he got the information from an article written in the New York Times. Hmm. But, I mean, it was... Uh, it, it, it reminds me of the Tom Clancy. What were we talking about? Yeah, we were talking about something, but well, uh, he knows Jack Ryan. He, he had all the. He had so many yeah. contacts that he got his his novels were so accurate, right? And he pushed the boundary, if you will, of 
what should the public know and what should the public not know? Because the bad guys can also know this stuff. Yeah, and I, if I remember right, it, it was the hunt for Red October, and there was actually senators who went to the Pentagon and were ticked because the United States didn't have this caterpillar. It was, it was a right. totally made-up thing, but because Clancy normally is talking about accurate stuff. But anyway, same situation here. This guy's detained by the FBI from putting this into the script. Yeah, so. where there's actually a line in there when, when Simon says that uh, forget gold no Fort Knox, that's for tourists yeah. because there's so much money here that you didn't have to worry about Fort Knox. A couple things. Bruce Willis is the one that suggested Samuel Jackson for this movie, which Jackson was thrilled. He's quoted as saying he's seen the the first movie at least 35 times. <laughs> uh, the director originally offered the part of Simon to Sean Connery. That was his first choice. He turned on the role saying he didn't want to play such a diabolical villain. Right. Samuel L. Jackson says that Zeus, who's his character in the movie, is the closest character to his pers his real personality that he's ever played. I thought that was That's pretty moment. that is pretty cool, especially if you watch the film, you can make that judgment and his he's pretty out there in some of his other roles too, so. Uh, before Bruce Willis came up with and, and suggested Samuel Jackson. The director actually had already approached Lawrence Fishburne. Mm. Lawrence Fishburne at first turned it down, but then he started reconsidering his decision, went back and said, I'll take it. They said, too bad. We already got Samuel L. Jackson. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, this is the only diehard film out of the five films that He's not risking his life to save his wife or his, and the next ones are going to be his kids right. as we go forward. But right. so, yeah, that's my. Uh, and I think it made some money too. Yeah, I didn't do the money yet. Yeah, nope. See, this is this is interesting to me. Budget was ninety million. Domestic a hundred million. Not that much more. Yeah. Uh -uh. Grossed worldwide three hundred and sixty-six million. So. Seems like the popularity wasn't. Uh, yeah, I. And it was a little odd there. Well, I know when I went to see it, I thought the first part of it. I don't know. Uh, I didn't really like the first part of the film. I just thought it was a little weaker. I liked it once they got into the real conflict with the bad guys. I mean, the bad guys are involved in that first part of it, and you have to bring. They had to have some way to bring these two guys together, and that's how they brought them together. Right. And because. One is white, one is black. There's a racial overtone at the very beginning, and it's in that's that's played on throughout the film too. There are some lines that between the two of them that you, you get that. Yep, Sometimes right. it they're they're rubbing each other, and the other times they're saving each other. So, but it plays, and and Jackson is is a good foil along with uh, Willis. So now. That came out in 1995. The fourth didn't come out until 2007. Yeah, a little, little bit of a You kind of wonder, space and we've that. talked about this. Well, okay, they did three. There's a trilogy. Maybe it's time to stop. You know, how many, how many? But since they waited so long, you kind of wonder, hey, McLean's getting older. I mean, how much time can, you know, take all these beatings? Well, in 2007 came out the fourth one, which is Live Free or Die Hard. This one, I really like the premise of this because uh, the premise is 4th of July holiday. 
an attack on the vulnerable United States infrastructure, and we're talking about all the digital aspects of our lives, everything from the banking system to Social Security to the security of the nation, the military, whatever, rogue IT guy. Can I came, call him an IT guy? What else would I call him? Some uh, hacker. He's yeah, a hacker. He's like a hacker. He's a super hacker. And Dark web hacker. They, he actually had worked on a program, and he was dismissed by the federal government. And they actually kind of tried to ruin his reputation. So his revenge is to bring down the United States technical infrastructure. And McLean gets pulled into this, trying to, he's given a task of bringing a guy in that the police want. He doesn't know why they want him. He's just sent on this. And what, he, what it is, this kid is instrumental into understanding what's happening. And so he spends the entire movie trying not only to catch the guys who are doing the hacking, but to keep this kid alive. And they, the age difference and the technology differences between the two of them. I mean, Eddie, you're the IT person around here. I'm old school. My technical skills are, uh, shall we say, Neanderthal. So are you um, trying to say you're Bruce Willis? And well, well, I don't know if I go that far, but that's what we're talking about. Somebody oh, okay. who's, who understands, can explain all this thing, can work a phone and do all this. While Willis is saying, would you just tell me what we got to do? He's used to punching people, grabbing people, shooting, shooting people. people yeah. And this technology thing, is, he's just getting his, can't get his head around. But they, they end up working well together, and that forms the, the thing until finally, as Eddie alluded earlier, McLean's daughter gets drawn into this, and her safety and her life is endangered. Now Willis steps up the pace and really becomes motivated to resolve this thing as quickly as possible. And he goes through some some situations that, frankly, you might stretch a little bit of the imagination how he possibly survived a couple of them. But yeah. he does. There are some great scenes in this, particularly when you realize how instrumental all this technology is to controlling gas flow in the in the gas system throughout the United States, the electrical grid, and as I said, the security of uh, the military and also the money situation with the Social Security and all the, the banking system, everything that could come unglued with what this guy is trying to do. So you've got uh, a lot of tense situations, not only just the shoot them up normal things that we expect from Bruce Willis. That's it. But I like this film. I, I did like this film a lot. I've seen it several times. Yeah, this one seems it was a lot. I I thought it was refreshing. I guess. The, the, I mean, he was still old in it, but at least it it was a more um, with the computers and all that kind of stuff. It was more current. Yeah, it was. It was more. It it's actually poses what we know to be true. It's a very very. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Real the, possibility. Yeah, the whole uh, the whole electric grid and all that kind of stuff. Right. It's been said for years that they're susceptible to possible terrorist, terrorist. attacks and all that kind of stuff. Oh, so yes. This kind of took it and run with it. I'm just going to make a point. Of course, Bruce Willis is in The young man is played by Justin Long, and the bad guy is Tim Oliphant, who has gone on to some other... He, uh, he had a TV series on Fox. He also was in... Uh, played the hitman 
the first movie of the Hitman, where he's a hitman with a, they put that imprint on the back of his head. I forget the, but he's, he's very good in this one. Uh, he's just oily enough to, uh, and yet he's very, very bright. And his girlfriend, uh, who's played by Maggie Q, is instrumental in a couple of incidents with uh, yeah there's some Mc pretty cool scenes McLean, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's quite a few fight sequences that are very good in this she wears the pants in the relationship yeah she does she does <laughs> she does a lot of uh kicking and uh punching and so yeah she's like the security yeah. detail the budget for this <laughs> film die hard live free die hard 110 million was the budget domestic 134 million and it grossed $383.5 million. This one was directed by Len Wiseman. I don't know if we mentioned that. So different set of directors. A couple things that I, I have here. Every day of shooting cost an average of $375,000. I thought that was pretty Holy interesting. Cow. The phrase live free or die is from a toast written by the revolutionary mm -hmm. soldier, General John Stark. The full phrase is live free or die. Death is not the worst of evils. You being, you know, a history person. The patriot. That, that, came, that came from back then, revolutionary area. Mm -hmm. Yep. You're probably at that meal when they made the toast, right? Uh, no, it was a little before my time. Okay. Just a little <laughs> before my time. Remember, I didn't, I wasn't, t I, I voted for Abe Lincoln, remember? That's later on. So I... I wasn't around for the revolution, but <laughs> I've noticed in the last few episodes I have not taken a shot at your age. And yeah, I, I know, I know. Just felt I had to. Yep. Samuel L. Jackson was actually at one point rumored to be reprising his role as Zeus mm. Carver, but of course didn't. This is Mar this is kind of funny because it's true when you think back. This marks the fourth Die Hard movie. There's been four where John McCain talks to the main villain via walkie-talkie. Yeah. I don't know why, right, but, right. The, but just one of the things. And there's also, in every single movie, Die Hard movie so far, there's an elevator scene of some sort. There, yeah, there's right. always something happens there's, in an elevator. There's a couple of them in this movie, actually. There's yeah. one when we're, where he's with that one place, and then his daughter is involved with the other one. Yeah, right. that's pretty significant. So they take those different things. So I'm sure in the next movie that we're going to talk about, Somewhere there was an elevator and somewhere there was a walkie-talkie. Yeah. And one last thing that I was going to mention. Th this is the first of the Die Hard series that does not reference that it is made during the Christmas holiday. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it wasn't directed by McTiernan either, John McTiernan. Right. This guy by the name of Len Wiseman, who I, I really don't know. So, But it did well. I mean, these movies are doing well overseas is what you're saying, too. So there's an international... Uh, one thing I didn't mention way back uh, that I did not know, the original one, die, the original Die Hard, was actually given a prize in Japan. It won the Japan Academy Prize for Outstanding Foreign Language Film 1990. <laughs> <laughs> so they loved it over there, Nakatomi, you know, not, you know. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> so that's uh, that's pretty cool. That's that one. Uh, it's also interesting that they named the uh, the bad guy in this. His name was Gabriel. So there's probably an overtone here of uh, what fallen angels or something. I don't know. Yeah, because uh, that that 
like like we talked, the bad guy is actually was a CIA hacker dude. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that fell. He was an, he was an, you know I guess you would call a fallen angel yeah. because he was taking all those skills that he was taught and was. And every one of these movies you talk about, there's always the interplay between the bad guy and Willis. Yeah. Like you're talking. So they get the snide remarks and they can make the smart aleck, you know, like, I thought you were, you know, it's kind of like the old thing. I thought you were dead. No, not that. You know, back and forth this way. Right. They keep thinking, why don't you just die, you know? <laughs> kind of makes it, it brings in it, that personal. Yes. Thing. It yeah. allows him to show his personality and that flippant, constant flippant remarks that he makes. Okay. In other words, one last one. This came, they waited another six years to do this one. And this is, again, a family affair, if you want to call it that. This is a good day to die hard, and it takes place in Russia, where McLean is, ends up, he's traveling to Moscow to help his wayward son, Jack. And he rolls in, finds his son is actually working kind of undercover. He actually is a CIA operative, and they meet actually by accident in the in the streets of Moscow, and uh, there's some uh, explosions and so on, and they're off and running, and they're embroiled in uncovering some activity by these nefarious Russians, and he's pretty weary, he's worried, and he and his son have a kind of a, a shall we say, a bad relationship to start with because he's basically been a distant father figure, if you will. Right. So, there's that over overtone, but uh, it allows them to kind of bond, I guess you would say, and amidst all the violence and trying to save each other and survive while they're going after the bad guys. And there's a bad girl in this too, a bad woman in this. This is uh, probably one of the reasons why there hasn't been one since. <laughs> Another director, John Moore. Budget was ninety-two million. Domestic, sixty-seven million. Worldwide gross, three hundred and four and a half million. So this one really puts that exclamation point on. This one does better overseas. I mean, it, if if you based the sales just on domestic, it would have lost. It would have lost all um, tons of money. Um, now Noam Muro, I don't know, he's a director. Originally was going to be the director of this film. N O A M is his first name, M U R R O. Does that sound right? Yeah. Um, but his commitment to the film 300, 300 Rise of an Empire, 2014, prevented oh. him from working on the film. Oh. Does that sound right? It could be. Could be. I Wasn't don't 300 I know. That done? Film. I know that film, but I don't know who directed I didn't pay attention to who directed it. The guy that ended up doing this is what? John. John Moore. John yeah. Moore, yeah. This is the shortest and the worst critically received movie in the whole series. Justin Timberlake was considered for the role of John McClane Jr. Yeah. Doesn't really yeah. do anything for me. Here's a shocker. Not a popular movie in Russia. <laughs> I wonder why. Just, just not. I wonder why. Very unpopular in Russia. <laughs> I, I don't know why. Yeah, there's some reasons that that would be, uh, yeah, it's not a good look for, uh, uh, yeah, it makes it look like most of the Russians are thuggish, business, nefarious, bad guys. <laughs> and, and here's my note, I actually mentioned it with the other movie. This movie as well has an elevator scene in it. So 
all Die Hard movies, including Very Elevator cool. Single. I've seen. Well, what's interesting here is you're right about it being short. Most of these are all two hours. I saw that it's uh, like one hour and 38 minutes. There's a lot of action in it. I, I found, a, you talked about, was not critically reviewed well. I mean, most people did like the other ones. They, they, I, I'll just read a couple things from a guy by the name of A.O. Scott. This is the film critic for the New York Times that I ran across. Quote, McLean himself has evolved from angry everyman to weary, worried dad. He travels to Moscow to help his son, that's Jack, played by Jay Courtney. And I had told, this is an aside, I had told Eddie earlier, Jay Courtney played one of the bad guys in Jack Reacher, the original first Jack Reacher film with uh, Tom Cruise. So I had that image in my mind and I kind of didn't buy him being McLean's son. So that kind of was a little bias I had. Anyway, he says, who at first looks like a bad seed, but turns out to be a chip off the old block. Some dads take their boys fishing or to the ball game or to a movie like this one, but the McLeans prefer a more form of bonding, killing miscreants, though Pop McLean uses a more evocative word. <laughs> so it goes down here, and it says, though it will most likely scare up some domestic business, which turned out not to be all that great, in the pre-Oscar law, happy Valentine's Day, because it came out in February, a good day to die hard is squarely aimed at the overseas marketplace. About a third of the dialogue is already subtitled, and the rest would take a competent translator about 15 minutes to render. So he goes on here. I'm not saying I wish it was the 80s again. I'm skipping down here. He says, the Die Hard was memorable. The first was, die, was memorable. The nuances of character, the political subtext, the, comedy, the cowboy wit has been dumbed down or scrubbed away entirely. I'm not saying I wish it was the 80s again. Maybe I am. If that makes me a grumpy old man, it's John McClane's fault. <laughs> so it that ties exactly what you said. He's right on. It made more money. It, it didn't do well here at all. And, no. But all these other films did really well. What did you say the national or the world was on this one? This one, the world was three hundred and four right. and a half million. All right. They still made three. All of them were in the three hundreds for foreign. So yeah, and this one cost ninety-two million. So it did make pretty good money. Now, there is rumored a sixth movie called McLean. Has not been given a date. Director John Moore again, yeah. which might not be a good thing. But uh, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah. He's getting pretty old, though. Yeah. yeah. His kids are going to have to reel him around in the wheelchair, yeah. hand him the gun. Yeah, well, this goes again to where you, you can run this thing. Yeah, he will be. Well, maybe he'll be directing a whole bunch of his grandkids. He'll be out there going after go. the bad guys. Anyway, uh, anything else? I think it's probably sufficient. Yeah, I just, uh, I, you know, with the Christmas season coming up yeah. here pretty soon, yeah. I recommend Die Hard for your festive entertainment. Yeah, you could do it a double bill with the Christmas story. That would work really well. Yeah. Every, and you put Elf, <laughs> Elf in the middle. There yeah, there you go. Hey, what's the clock on the wall telling us, Eddie? Well, Johnny, looks like it is that time again. But before I turn it over to you, as always, as always, thank you to our listeners for listening and subscribing to our show. If you like our show, please leave a review through whatever platform you are using to listen. We have had a great first season. We hope you've enjoyed it. We would love if you would leave a comment to let us know what you think of season one, 
What did you like? What did you not like? Your feedback will definitely be considered as we plan for future episodes in, in the next season. You can send your comment through our website, DM us on Instagram or tweet us at We Talkin Movies. Also find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash We're Talking Movies. Season two is right around the corner, as I mentioned at the top of the show. Season two will premiere in early January 2020. In the meantime, keep a lookout for our 2019 end of the year special. We'll look back at our first season. We'll also look at movies that were released in 2019, discuss the movies we are looking forward to in 2020. And I think before the end of the year, I'm going to tie you to the chair and make you watch Shazam, which yeah. was the best movie that came out earlier this spring. I know. I, 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 I should probably do that. So I, that. I think I'm going to have to. <laughs> I did. I, you know, I watched some of these others you suggest, and uh, that one I haven't picked up to do with yet. Yeah, I, I own it, so I could show it to you. Season two, I think, is going to be great. We're going to make it improvements technology-wise. I feel that from our first episode that we did this season to now, we've improved and, and we've learned a lot, and I think we're going to hit season two, hopefully entertaining yeah. uh, and, and growing our listenership. Yeah. That would be great. So, Well, the one thing we, we really hope all of you who have listened just see that we have an appreciation for movies. We, you know, we're always torn between how much we say because we encourage people to watch these movies on their own. We assume some of you, uh, it's always dangerous to assume, but some of you obviously have seen these movies. And so it wouldn't be a spoiler, but we're always in that, unless it's really old, some of the old ones I don't feel so bad about because they've been around for 100 years. <laughs> but if, it, if it's newer... We just encourage people to go look at these things, and hopefully if you hear us, our, our passion for some of these things, we have fun with this, that the, what we do and how we do it encourages you to take a look at a film or revisit a film that you've always liked and you haven't seen it for a while. That's really what we intended when we set out on this, just to have fun with it. So, Yeah, basically, you know, share what we love about movies not critique really not i mean of course we criticize a little bit we don't like something but we're not critics or anything like that we just want to shoot the breeze with the movies and and share it with y'all so that's right well looks like that's all for today folks till next time keep your eyes on the silver screen and as we fade to black this is johnny popcorn and eddie klieg saying so long till we're talking again 